Section 8 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 William and Mary, Part 3. These treacherous proceedings were not at all suspected. In 1691, William took Marlborough with him to the continent where he assisted in preparations for the next campaign. His talents drew considerable attention upon him. When William asked the Prince of Vaudemont, one of the ablest commanders in the Dutch service, his opinion of the English generals, he answered, Kirk has fire, Lanier thought, Mackey skill, and Colchester bravery. But there is something inexpressible in the Earl of Marlborough. All their virtues seem to be united in his single person. If I can read what is written in his face, no subject of your majesty can ever attain such a height of military glory as that to which this combination of sublime perfections must raise him. William answered with a smile, I believe the Earl of Marlborough will do his part to verify your prediction. At his return to England, Marlborough entered into closer connection than ever with the Jacobites. He determined to make use of the growing feeling of discontent among the English at the favor shown by the king to his own countrymen, and to bring an address into the House of Lords requesting the king to remove all foreigners from his service. Marlborough hoped in this way to get rid of all the Dutch troops in England. He thought that his popularity with the English army would enable him to lead it as he liked, and that, by a bloodless revolution, he could bring back James to the throne. But the Jacobites distrusted his promises. They thought that once master of the situation, he would not use it for the benefit of James, but would prefer to place the Princess Anne on the throne, since his influence over her was such that, were she queen, he would be able to rule the country in her name. His plans were therefore made known to William by the Jacobites themselves, and William saw at once that it was impossible to leave a man capable of such treachery in high command in the army. In January 1692, Marlborough was deprived of all his offices and forbidden to appear in the royal presence. The true cause of his disgrace was not known at the time. It would have been impossible to make the Jacobites appear publicly against him, and many surmises on the subject were afloat. The truth has become known to us through the memoirs of James II. Though the Princess Anne was told by her sister of the causes which had led to Marlborough's disgrace, she would not be separated from her beloved friends. After three weeks, she even allowed Lady Marlborough to go to court with her. This was too much for Mary. She wrote an angry letter to Anne, bidding her at once dismiss Lady Marlborough from her service. Anne answered that there was no misery she would not rather suffer than to be parted from her friend, but William and Mary remained firm, and Anne left the court rather than lose Lady Marlborough. She removed with her household to Sion House on the Thames, and during the remainder of Mary's life lived either there or at Barclay House in Piccadilly. The breach between her and William and Mary was complete. They spared no pains to show their indignation at her conduct. Her income could not be touched, 
but her guard of honour was taken away, and the foreign ministers no longer waited upon her. On the 5th of May of the same year, Marlborough was suddenly arrested on a charge of high treason and carried to the Tower. A wretched man named Young, who was at that time imprisoned in Newgate on a charge of forgery, hoped to gain distinction for himself by making known an imaginary plot to the government. He had forged the signatures of Marlborough and other distinguished persons in a document in which the subscribers bound themselves to take up arms in the cause of James. The whole thing was such a transparent forgery that after a few weeks' detention in the Tower, Marlborough was released on bail. This false accusation was really useful to him, for the people regarded him as an innocent man wrongly accused, and had little idea how near Young came to the truth. It was thought that the loss of his offices a few months before might be as undeserved as his imprisonment in the Tower. But this imprisonment increased his hostility against the government, and he lost no opportunity of opposing it in the House of Lords and keeping up his communications with James at Saint-Germain. In 1694, an opportunity presented itself of doing an act which would convince James of his sincerity. The war on the continent still went on, and Louis XIV, anxious to strike a blow on Spain, determined to send his fleet into the Mediterranean to attack Barcelona. William sent Russell after the French fleet with the greater part of the combined Dutch and English fleets, and made arrangements for a descent upon Brest by a body of troops under General Tolmash. He hoped that in the absence of the French fleet, the place might easily be taken. The plan was kept a profound secret, but Marlborough discovered it and gave notice of it to James, who gave information to the French government. Preparations were at once taken to meet the attack. Adverse gales detained the English and gave the French ample time. Tolmash, confident that his attack was unexpected, landed in spite of clear signs that there were troops ready to oppose him. He was greeted by heavy fire and was himself one of the first to perish. His troops only succeeded in re-embarking after suffering terrible loss. Tolmash was one of the ablest English generals, and Marlborough is said by some to have betrayed him from a desire for the death or disgrace of a possible rival. But the baseness of his conduct remains the same, whether it arose from mere personal ambition or from a desire to ingratiate himself with James. Whilst the country was mourning over this disaster, of which he was the cause, he presented himself at Whitehall and asked permission to use once more his sword for William and Mary. William knew well his splendid abilities and often regretted that he could not make use of them, but he had learnt to regard him with deep suspicion and sent back from the Netherlands, where he then was, a short and dry refusal to Marlborough's entreaty. I can say no more, he wrote, than that I do not think it for the good of my service to entrust the command of any troops to him. Marlborough's whole attitude was changed by the death of Queen Mary in 1694. Mary was still in the prime of life when, after a few days' illness, she was carried off by smallpox. 
William's grief was so violent that after he had been carried away insensible from her bedside, men feared for his reason and his life. The queen's bright, amiable nature had gained her the love of her people, and never had the death of a sovereign caused such genuine and profound grief. But to Marlborough, her death opened a bright prospect. It was entirely unexpected. William's wretched constitution had made his early death highly probable. Then Mary might have married again, and had children to succeed her on the throne. At any rate, she was little older than Anne, and was strong and vigorous. There was no reason for thinking that Anne would ever come to the throne. Now everything was changed. William, with his feeble health, could not live long. A few years would see Anne on the throne, and then Marlborough would be all-powerful. He could afford to bide his time. A reconciliation between Anne and William followed immediately on Mary's death, and William's animosity to the Marlboroughs gradually decreased. But in 1696, Marlborough was suddenly threatened by a disclosure of his treasonable relations with James. A well-known Jacobite conspirator, Sir John Fenwick, was arrested and imprisoned. In terror for his life, he sought to save himself by promising to make a confession to the king of all he knew about the Jacobite plots. He drew up his confession and named as the chief conspirators Russell, Godolphin, Marlborough, and Shrewsbury, then Secretary of State. To William it was no news that these men were engaged in a treasonable correspondence, but he knew well that except for a few rare exceptions, he would look in vain amongst the English statesmen of that day for men upon whose fidelity he could count. He now professed surprise and incredulity at Fenwick's confession, which he forwarded at once to Shrewsbury himself. Marlborough's perfect command of temper enabled him to listen to the accusation with the contempt and indifference of conscious innocence. The matter was brought before the House of Lords, and there Marlborough arose and said, I assure your lordships that since the accession of his present majesty, I have had no intercourse with Sir John on any subject whatever, and this I declare on my word of honor. His words may have been true, but they are nothing more than a clever quibble when we consider the treason of which he was really guilty. Godolphin excused himself with many protestations, but Shrewsbury, though the least guilty of them all, was too ashamed to appear and insisted on resigning his secretaryship. Godolphin had resigned his office as soon as Fenwick's confession became known. The Whigs who hated him as the one Tory in high power brought pressure upon him to do so, and William gladly accepted his resignation. Fenwick's attempts to save his life by accusing others were useless, and he was executed under a bill of attainder. Fenwick's confession made no difference in William's feelings about Marlborough. He saw that self-interest would make him a useful servant for the future, and so the past might be forgotten. Anne's eldest child, the Duke of Gloucester, was now nearly nine years of age, and it was thought that he ought to have a separate establishment. In accordance with Anne's earnest wish, William appointed the Earl of Marlborough his governor, whilst his literary training was confided to Burnet, Bishop of Salisbury. Marlborough's appointment was received with general favor, 
as he was then extremely popular. Shortly afterwards he was again sworn a member of the Privy Council, and when the king was about to go to Holland in 1698, Marlborough was named one of the nine Lords Justices who were to govern the country in his absence. End of Section 8